when I was 15 years old. Right when I was discovering girls and learning how to talk to girls and hoping to someday kiss a girl. I went to youth group and met Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. What a travesty of bad timing that was. I mean... And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to jump into yet another hammering of Christian purity culture and the ways it screwed me up and the ways it screwed so many other people up. I mean, we've talked about that before. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. What I'm thinking about today, though, is the weirdest part of all the weird trips that were run on me was that the youth group I was part of, they wanted us to date. They did. I, I think. They understood that that was important for the future of the church. They wanted us to date. They just didn't want us to, to date or to choose mates on the basis of something as shallow as physical attraction, as carnal as all that. Rather, our youth leaders were always telling us like, looks aren't what really matters. What really matters is there's the soul of a person and, and, and the spiritual vitality of that person. You know, does it, is it, is, does it, does she have a heart for God? That's what, she, that's what you should be finding attractive. I mean, they really ran this number to the point where we felt guilty. I felt guilty at least that I was so aware of looks when in fact, what I should have been doing was looking at the heart. I, I remember that verse, like man looks at the external appearance, but, but God looks at the heart. We were supposed to become more, more Christ-like by looking at the heart. And you know, the older I get and the farther I get away from that, the more I just go like, could you be less realistic? I mean, you study evolution. Every species on the planet judges potential mates on the basis of fitness. There's and there, like there's the, the physical signs that somebody is going to be able to bear your, your, your progeny and carry forth your DNA and give it the best chances of surviving and moving forward. Like that's literally how natural selection works. And so this idea that like I was supposed to be, have a literally turn a blind eye to that stuff and judge people only on these internal things. And don't get me wrong. All those things are actually really important and looks and beauty do fade, but like, that's the basis. That's where it starts. That's where our connections to each other start in that kind of raw animal attraction. And I kind of don't know what to do with that weirdness when it comes to, I guess, what I feel like has an, a movement that's sort of emerged in our society that is sort of saying, hey, we need to be body positive. All bodies are beautiful. On the one hand, it, my, my egalitarian self, my like, I want everybody to be happy self thinks body positivity is a wonderful idea. And yet it does seem to run counter to most of our lived experiences. And so I was kind of excited when Molly Robbins agreed to talk with me because Molly Robbins is kind of at the forefront of the whole body positivity movement. Molly's the host of the podcast, My Big Fat Recovery. And she's what she's recovering from is diet culture. What she's recovering from is fat phobia and body shaming and all the negative stuff that comes along with being a fat person, which is what she calls herself in a society that is diet obsessed and that is thinness obsessed. And I wanted to ask her about some of those ideas because I think what she would say is, those are ideas. 
our, our culture has ideas about bodies and about attractiveness that are damaging. And I know she's right, obviously, that the, that the way that we, the way that we are is damaging. I'm just not sure if it's avoidable or escapable. So we ended up having, we ended up talking about, you know, the experience of having a big body in a diet obsessed culture. And I had done some research and I ended up asking her about uh, something that I came across that seemed really fascinating to me called intuitive eating and what a healthy relationship with food looks like for all of us. I mean, not just for health buffs, but like everybody, like what does it mean to have a healthy relationship with our food? What does it mean to be healthy at, at any size or at every size, which is kind of one of the mantras of that movement. And Molly was a, a really good person to talk to. And, and, and the reason she was good was because although she is a strong advocate, she is not a militant a activist. I, I, I asked questions that I think somebody else might've said, well, like I, I'm offended by your question or I don't like your perspective. And Molly was just curious and interested and she went back and forth. I just really, I really liked it. And you know, I, 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 I didn't come into the conversation sure that I would agree with her on everything, but I came in sure that like, this was a person who had really thought this stuff through and be worth hearing. And I think that is absolutely true. The more I wrestle with stuff like this, the more I realize that you know, while we may live in a binary culture politics wise, and there's like you're for us or you're against us, this polarizing stuff that we're always talking about, that it, it isn't simple and it isn't binary, that there's gray, shades of gray. And uh, this is one of those conversations where I think like I learned a lot. And I think that, I think that the stuff that we carry around in our heads often affects the way we treat people. And so even if we think we're treating people with dignity or with equanimity or with respect, I think sometimes people are able to feel the vibe behind our words. And so I think it's really important for somebody like me, not just to get my words right, but to try to get my head right if I want to be a good person if I want to build a community that really does include everyone, or at least is, is open to including everybody capable of embracing everybody. So I think, I think, I think you can find what's interesting is, is that this is a new, this is a conversation that's really about nuance, I think. And that's why you're going to get it on this podcast. Cause we're really into nuance these days, aren't we? And, uh, I, I'm just really grateful that we were able to to find somebody willing to talk to us in this way. If it's about humanizing people, this is going to be a good one. This is me and Molly Robbins chopping it up on the show. If somebody's just meeting you for the first time and they were to say, hey, Molly, what's your thing? Like, what's, what, what do you do? What would you tell them? Sure. Um, I would say my thing uh, has become turning my lived experience into my career. Um, so I've always been a helper, but um, now I'm getting my degree in clinical psychology. Um, I'm getting my doctorate to 
specifically work in the field of weight stigma and eating disorders. Um, and I think that's been a direction I've been going in for a long time, but, uh, I think that's really me finding my niche right now. Um, and entering the field, not only as a person with lived experience, but now as a professional. And when you say a person with lived experience, what's your lived experience? Sure. Um, so I have always been fat and I say that as a neutral descriptor. I think a lot of the time our impulse, um, as caring individuals is to reassure people and say, don't worry, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Or, um, even to lie to people and say, you're not fat, you're just fluffy or whatever innuendos people come up with. Um, and the truth is that I am fat, just like I'm, uh, you know, five foot two and I'm fat and I have blonde curly hair and I'm fat. And for me, um, reclaiming that as a neutral descriptor has been a part of my journey, partly because I was always told and socialized to believe that being fat was the worst thing that you could be. And that really impacted the way that I adjusted to being a human being in the world. Um, specifically because I was fat and I was told that that was the worst thing. I tried a lot of ways to not be fat and that for me turned into an eating disorder. Um, and I spent a long time in that eating disorder. Um, I can, you know, talk more about my journey to recovery and what that means for me, but, uh, I am really lucky to be in a place in my life where I have found, um, a form of liberation from that illness and from the ways that, um, I've had to unlearn a lot of what I was taught about my own body and about my world, um, about my worth. Yeah. 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 So if I understand you right, the eating disorder grew out of the messaging that you got as a kid growing up, that being fat was a horrible thing. Absolutely. And I want to be clear, um, you know, I don't specifically blame one thing because mental health is immensely complex. Um, The field of psychology is not that old, but it's old enough that you think we would have a better grasp of what mental illness even is at this point. And the truth is that we're always learning and mental health is incredibly complex. And I do not blame specifically fat phobia for the sole creation of my eating disorder. Um, in some ways, well, I sure. wish it was that simple. Um, what, what, what I am curious yeah. about though is, is when you think about the voices that hammered home to you the idea that your size was not a good thing. Um, does it, is, is it, is it, a, are, is it particular people? Is it like, Oh, that was my mom said that, or my dad mm-hmm. said that, or my aunt Sally said that, or my teacher at school said that who said that to you? Sure. So there's a few different voices and my eating disorder really became those voices. It became a really amplified version of it to a very extreme level. Uh, I think the biggest contributor, um, that is, uh, sometimes unexpected if people haven't experienced medical fat phobia. Um, the biggest contributor for me was medical providers. So, um, what better voice for an eating disorder to latch onto than a trusted professional that is tasked to do no harm and to take care of us. Um, so a lot of, you know, to this day, I still have that voice sometimes. Um, but a lot of it comes from my experience with medical providers. So, so you'd go to the doctor as a kid and mm-hmm. they would, and they would look at you and say, Oh, 
Molly, oh, yeah. this is not good. You got to lose some weight here. Absolutely. I remember distinctly an experience. Um, I must have not been older than 12. I think I was probably around eight or nine. Um, and I think that is when people started to really point out to me that my weight was deviant and not okay. And it was very much framed in the context of health and that uh, the implication was you're going to get X, Y, and Z disease and die. Um, your life will not be as fulfilling. Um, you know, insert overgeneralization here. But I distinctly remember the first time or the first time that I remember them bringing it up. And it was my lovely pediatrician. And she pulled out a BMI chart. And there was a normative curve on that chart that showed the range of where you're quote unquote supposed to be. And she pointed to my projected development. Um, and I think the way she framed it was, you know, if you keep going the way you're going, here's where you're going to be. And her, her finger dragged off the edge of the paper. So she was telling me that my weight was so deviant and was going to become so deviant that I wasn't even anywhere near the norm. And uh, it was horrific. I was mortified. And there were little sort of vignettes like that. I mean, other experiences of just being told to go to really extreme lengths um, and being told specifically that it was okay for me to go to extreme lengths because I was a fat kid. This and, was such a big problem. Yes, yeah. this is like Do whatever it takes. By, every, by all means necessary. All yeah. means necessary. Life and death. Do what it takes. Um, okay. So, so listen, I heard you talking to some women on a podcast once Sure. and you said that you like to be a myth buster. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going to give you a shot right here because I'm sitting here going like a really heavy girl comes into my, a really heavy 12 year old comes into my doctor's office. And I'm thinking that doctor wasn't trying to be mean. Mm -hmm. That doctor really believed, Hey, this is a big problem for you. Yeah. And so I sense that you're, you're like, that doctor was operating under a myth. And I'd like, what's the myth that that doctor was operating on as far as you're concerned? Yes. And I so appreciate you framing it in that way, because I don't think that any of my doctors were setting out to give me an eating disorder or to be jerks. The myth that they were operating under was that weight is the sole determinant of health and needs to be controlled uh, by whatever means. And I think that there are a lot of myths that go into that, um, specifically the direct causational relationship between weight and health status, I think is where a lot of these myths uh, like, or come together in healthcare settings. So, and so, so, so do you think like, so are you saying like, cause obviously I don't think that Dr. Thought myth, weight was the only determinant of health. Yes. Like you probably thought like if you were smoking cigarettes, that was also going right. to be a problem. Right. But that weight was a huge determinant in your health. Right. And that it would be the, I think it was so black and white to them. And it still is to so many people. Um, well, yeah. And what's weird is like, I'm sitting here going like, oh no, Ma, you're going to hate me. But like, is, isn't there a component in which there are certain health outcomes that are really influenced by weight? Like, isn't that true? Well, Bart, I'm not going to hate, I'm not going to hate you. I promise. Um, but what I would ask you to consider is where are the gray areas there and what are the other factors? So I think it's, uh, missing the point when people say there's no relationship between weight and health. I don't think that's correct. 
And I don't think that the research supports that. But I do think we need to look at what other factors are involved. So for me, um, I'm fairly open about the fact that I, um, you know, have experienced health issues that could be attributed to weight. But what I've come to understand is that it's not that simple. And that for me, weight is a symptom, for example, of my polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS and the insulin resistance that comes with that. Whereas I was taught insulin resistance was made worse by weight. And it's kind of this chicken and an egg thing where, um, you know, it's just kind of like, well, if weight is a symptom of these illnesses, um, how are we blaming it then on that symptom? Why aren't we looking at what is actually going on on a deeper biological level? Um, and say that it was directly a causational relationship. We know that exercise and diet play a significantly smaller role than most people believe in our ability to control our weight. Something I often remind myself of is that weight is not a behavior. And I think that is one of those fundamental myths that people fall into thinking that, and you know, I don't blame them because that's a nice thought that you can just control your weight easy. That you can- I call it the, I, I, I think we could call that the Bill Maher myth, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I heard him just saying like, Hey, Listen, 50 years ago, people weren't this heavy. It's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's just a lack of discipline. Right. And wouldn't it be nice if that was the case and it was that simple and we could just be mad at people for being fat? But the truth is that it's way more complicated than that. And we shy away from that complexity because it leaves us in those gray areas. And I think, especially just as humans, we crave those categorizations. We crave blame Because especially, I think, for thin people or what often activists will refer to as straight-sized individuals, um, which is just somebody who's not plus-sized, for a straight-sized individual, it might be comforting to believe that you are the size that you are because of your level of discipline and your choices. In reality, there are a multitude of social determinants of health and of weight. And a large portion of that is genetics, it's environment, it's childhood trauma and stress, it's a gazillion factors um, that, you know, I don't think I'm enough of an expert in to really be able to speak to. But what I can say is that it's way more complicated than we want to believe. And I think we seek that comfort of wanting to believe it's that simple. So when did, when, when you're, when those messages turned into an eating disorder, what was the eating disorder? Sure. So um, weird twist in my story is that I was misdiagnosed for years, um, partly due to fat phobia. I, again, you know, she was lovely. She wasn't mean, but I had a lovely psychiatrist who didn't ask the right questions. And I was misdiagnosed with binge eating disorder because that is partly what I assumed that I had. I started seeing content online about eating disorders when I was about 16 or so, maybe 15. And I assumed that it was either anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. So because I was fat, I went to my psychiatrist and I said, I'm really struggling with food and my weight. And I think I have an eating disorder. And both of us assumed that that meant I had binge eating disorder. And I was actually put on a medication Uh, to reduce binge eating that made my actual behavior, which was restrictive eating, worse. Um, And that is something that has further empowered me to just, sometimes you're powered by rage. Um, And that is something that I'm pretty rageful about, to be honest, because it's messed up. 
And the fact that it made my actual eating disorder worse, I think, is an example of medical oversight and the real uh, harmful effects of things like fat phobia and discrimination in healthcare. So, so, so what's I, a restrict? What's a restrictive eating disorder? It's kind of an umbrella term. It's not exactly a correct diagnostic label. Um, specifically, my diagnosis was atypical anorexia. Um, and we can have a whole conversation about that diagnostic labeling and symptomology and how it's the same disorder as anorexia, but the weight component is what puts you in the atypical category. Uh, and we can have a whole other conversation about how only about 6% of patients with anorexia are underweight. So it's not really atypical to not be underweight, but uh, that is generally what we're referring to here. Um, a restrictive eating disorder generally refers to the primary concern being restricting one's intake or lowering the amount of food that they're eating. Somebody's trying like crazy not to eat. Yeah. And it doesn't always look like just fasting. I think that's a common misconception that people who aren't in the eating eating disorder world have is that a person with a restrictive eating disorder or with anorexia just doesn't eat. And that was a misconception that was harmful to me because the people in my life who didn't understand eating disorders said, well, I've seen you eat. I see you eat all the time. What are you talking about? Uh, and that made me, re you know, just question everything and further uh, not feel sick enough myself, which is a common issue with eating disorders, especially when you don't fit the typical mold. Um, but yeah, it basically meant that I, over time, was lowering the amount of food that I was eating. And restricting can look different for different people. Some people focus on certain numbers. There's often an obsessive component to it. Some people track certain numbers. Some people uh, go off of time and resort, resort more to fasting. For me, it really was very connected to that medical fat phobia I had experienced and some of the very disordered recommendations I was given from medical providers, specifically from a pediatric endocrinologist I had had. So for me, um, and I, you know, I always give the disclaimer that eating disorders are competitive and I don't like to give people ideas. So I don't go into super specifics about what that looked like for me, but generally speaking, it looked like specifically obsessing over protein and carbohydrate macronutrients and being very concerned about the grams of both of those nutrients for me and okay. trying to restrict it as low as I could, as well as increase the amount of time in between eating. Um, and I'll be honest, it left me feeling like crap. Um, yeah. so yeah. So, so here's a, here's a question I've got for you though. Uh, <laughs> gosh, they're all questions I've got for you, but I'm thinking like, your medical doctor gave you this weird information that got you focused on a specific kind of food that you're like, this is the stuff I've got to cut out. And you became kind of obsessed with that. Like that's a very crude description of what we're talking about here. Yeah. My question is, yeah. let's imagine, let's imagine the doctor had, had never said anything. He said, everything's great. Like you would have still ended up a fat woman, right? Absolutely. And I don't think it would have necessarily prevented me from even having an eating disorder because we also live in a very disordered world. And what I mean by that is we normalize disordered eating and tell people that that disordered eating is actually healthy. A lot of people refer to that as diet culture that stems from fat phobia. 
and that larger sociopolitical factors that influence our society. But even if a medical provider had said, and I think, honestly, everybody would have laughed at them and gotten me a new doctor if they had said that, because the rest of the world was telling me the same thing. It just had a different weight, pardon the pun here, uh, you know, coming from a doctor because they are seen as an authority figure. But I would have gotten the same messaging from my peers, from the school nurses who wait us every year, from media, from, uh, you know, looks that I would get from yeah, people. I'm, I'm, I mean, you would have got, I mean, I, I, and you probably did get it on the playground as a little kid. Like yeah. you would have gotten it, right? Because like it comes mm-hmm. from everywhere. Yes. I, what's funny is I, I had a family, I lived in, I lived in a neighborhood a number of years ago and there was a very fat family lived across the street from me. Like everybody was fat in that family. And I just assumed that they would be kind to each other about weight. But when they would get into arguments, the first thing that they would say mean to each other is they would call each other fat. Oh, yeah. It's our go-to. Yeah. Um, It's it's, it's that ubiquitous. Um, Yeah. And sometimes fat people are the worst uh, perpetuators of it, especially former fat people. I will say that is where I've experienced some of the most like vitriol is from former fat people who then feel very emboldened to say like, well, it's just easy. I did it. Um, but I think that internalized fat phobia can be really pervasive and hurtful to each other. Um, yeah. for sure. So now, now you've just walked into my trap Yeah. because when I was researching this, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. I invited, like, it's not like we invited you on and then I started thinking about this. Like Mm -hmm. we went looking for somebody like you to talk to because this is what we've been thinking about and talking about. Yeah. Um, Because we're trying to figure out like, what do you, what do you, what do we do around this issue? I mean, we're trying to help people who, we're we're trying to help ourselves become the best people we can be. And it feels like how we treat other people, how, how we deal with other people's bodies is a big issue right now. It's always been a big issue. And so, so as I'm thinking about this, so anyway, as I was doing my research, I ended up coming across this idea of what they call intuitive eating, mm, mm-hmm. which I had never heard of. Yeah. And it turns out it's a thing. It's so a thing. And it's, it's been around for a long time, right? Yeah. It's a pretty cool topic. Uh, I think I have so much to say about it. What are your thoughts about okay, it? Okay, so or? here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh-huh. Here, here's what I did. So I, I read up on it and there are 10 principles. Ooh. And they messed with me. Like, like some of them seem really commonsensical to me. Some of them didn't. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have Molly. I, yeah. like, I want to walk through the principles and see what you think of them. Because sure. it seemed like, like when they were talking about this body positivity stuff, um, I get it. And that's sort of included in one part of intuitive eating, but I thought it's a much bigger issue it than is. just love yourself, you know, listen it to is. Lizzo. Um, yeah. And can we talk about that for a moment? Because I think I started off as calling myself a body positive activist. Uh, and I learned that I didn't really vibe with that term as much anymore, partly because I think it's been co-opted by even just corporate advertising. Uh, we see it even in diet ads being like, love yourself and go on this nutritional wellness plan. That's definitely not a diet. 
um, we see body positivity uh, in sort of harmful ways too of people. Uh, there's There was this trend on TikTok for a while um, of specifically cisgender women um, who were what I would call straight-sized or thinner, hunching over and being like, don't worry about this role right here because it's your uterus. Now, not only is that anatomically incorrect, but it's also not helpful to anybody because what if it's not your uterus, which it happens to not be, that's not why people often have fat there. Um, what if it's just fat? And I said that online and people got so mad. They were like, this person should just be able to love themselves. They're talking about being positive about their own body. And I guess I just would hope that we can see the bigger picture a little bit in that the goal is not to say, hey, love yourself because anatomically you're allowed to have fat in these places or you are still socially acceptable because of X, Y, and Z or, uh, you know, weight isn't a behavior and that therefore you should love yourself. For me, it's much bigger than that. Uh, I would love for people to love themselves. I would love for people of all body types to feel awesome about themselves. But for me, the goal is much larger than that and broader. It's more about access. And my specific niche is also about preventing the second most deadly mental illness, which is eating disorders. The only mental illness above that is opioid abuse and fentanyl overdoses. So uh, I want people to have access to healthcare. Fat people go to the doctor and it's not about loving yourself. It's about having a blood pressure cuff that fits you. It's about being able to get an MRI. It's about going in for an earache and not getting a weight loss lecture. So yeah, I want people to love themselves, but that for me is where body liberation and fat liberation and body activism uh, really comes in as I think what our focus needs to be on more. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you. And yeah. that's, that's why when I, when I found this intuitive eating thing, I thought these people are onto something because it was much broader than just feel good about yourself. Um, and the first, the first one of them, the first principle that they had was the one that you just earlier had said. It, it, the first one was reject diet mentality. There are all these messages that you get on social media and in advertising and, and just among your friends and chit-chatting where, where people are saying, listen, it, diet culture is about all these messages that say it's all about what you eat and how much you eat and eat this way and don't mm -hmm. eat that way. And I sense that you're, I sense that you're not a fan of diet culture. You know, I'm not its biggest fan. I might have a little bit of a ax to grind with it. <laughs> And, and, but the idea of rejecting diet culture sort of intuitively, I was like, well, but wait a second. Like mm -hmm. a nutritionist would say, what you eat matters. I know that if I eat a bunch of chocolate before I go to bed, I don't sleep as well as if I drink a glass of water. The, the idea that the idea of rejecting diet culture, like what you mean by diet culture isn't think about what you're eating, right? Absolutely. So I think we have to separate diet culture from diet from health. So diet at its core really is just about our intake. It's a neutral word, comes from, you know, just trying to describe what we eat. Diet culture 
is kind of that gone toxic. So to me, diet culture is the diet industry saying, if you eat this way, we will have all these promises for you about the amazing life and skinny life that you will lead. And it's often not really about health, even though it's advertised that way. It sounds like diet culture, not diet is like what dietitians do and it's a good thing. But like diet culture, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that's about saying weight is everything. Like, like, like what really matters is that you be thin. Yes. What really matters is that you be thin and you eat in this way. And to me, what diet culture is, is also putting all of the onus on the individual. So if you succeed, that's the diet success. But if you fail, you must have lacked discipline. You must not have followed the diet close enough. And we know that the research doesn't actually support diets working. So beyond all the body liberation stuff, you know, if people feel like, Molly, what are you talking about? I don't want fat people to love themselves and feel free to exist in the world. Okay. But on a scientific data level, when we look at the literature, there is not evidence that diets, as in a restrictive way of eating in a specific plan, works. Okay. So wait, wait. uh, So again, I want to make sure I'm understanding. You're sort of going like, the first thing is, Diet culture says how much you weigh is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a problem. But the other thing is that it also says how much you weigh is completely determined by what and how much you eat. Yes. And, it's and you're like, offering- they're ignoring the genetics. They're ignoring the, the, yeah. the, the psych- psychological stuff that's going on. They're ignoring a lot of other things. They're ignoring everything except for their shiny new plan, which often is a repackaged version of an old diet plan. And it's selling you a lie. It's saying if you eat this way, you'll be healthy and thin and those things are the same. But uh, it's just not reality. It's just not. And then diet culture says, if you fail, don't worry, we're still here. We're a multi-billion dollar industry here with another plan. Maybe you lack discipline the first time. Maybe you just need a different plan. Here you go. Shiny, repackaged, try again. So it's, it's, it sounds like what you're really against is like almost advertising, like a certain kind of advertising that says, this is the goal and we're the ones that are going to help you get there. And you're like, it's the wrong goal and they're not the ones that are going to help you get there. So the other reasons that I don't like diet culture is because often it doesn't take into consideration people's cultural practices around food or different foods that might be relevant for them or not relevant to them. We all know when diet culture was obsessed with kale. So what about people who come from cultures who never ate kale? And for them, uh, you know, a diet of rice and beans and plantains was healthy or a diet of rice noodles and diet culture says, no, you need to eat these buckwheat soba, uh, you know, zero calorie, zero joy noodles. It's not culturally competent either. And it's this prescriptive way of eating when human beings are so complex and health is so complex. So why are we telling people if you just follow this plan, it'll work for you. And if everybody follows this plan, it'll work for everybody. It's just not reality. So part of it is just that the idea that it it doesn't treat people as individuals or 
or, or respect the differences among people. It's funny because like what I'm thinking about right now is Michael Pollan's book, uh, mm-hmm. um, In Defense of Food. Yes. His sort of diet plan was eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Do you, do you look at even something like that and go like, that's way too prescriptive? I think it is prescriptive, but it's also not necessarily realistic and it still is moralizing food. And that is another area that I think as a society, we need to move away from is saying this food is good and this food is bad. And if you eat this bad food, you are bad. And I think Michael Pollan's book, you know, I don't know if anybody's listened to the podcast maintenance phase, but I would definitely recommend them as well. They, I think, did an episode about his book and it was a good reminder for me of the complexities of him. And I think I also was raised to believe some of those things, especially about processed foods and about, um, I think he talks a lot about farmer's markets and how that's so much better. And, uh, I think we just have to be careful with that because not only is quote unquote healthy, unprocessed food more expensive, but it's often inaccessible. It's often, you know, people live in food deserts, people, don't have transportation. People don't have time. And again, we have to come back to that idea that your health is about way more than what you're eating on a day-to-day That's true, but why? Just because something's expensive and inaccessible doesn't mean it's still not a good thing. Like I, I think there are certain surgeries that are really inaccessible and expensive, but like they really work well. And like it would be great if everybody had access to them. And I don't, I think like a guy like Michael Pollan would say like, I'm not saying that everybody can eat, eat food. I'm just saying like, it would, if you could, it would be better for you. Yeah. I would still agree with that. Yeah, I would too. I think I just want to move away from saying that that is like the best and only way for everybody. And I think it's sort of beside the point because it's not reality. So, okay, maybe if everybody could shop at a farmer's market every day um, and lived in a place with access to unprocessed, unwhatever foods, there's still so much else that goes into it. And I think telling people um, that that is sort of the morally righteous way is where I have a problem with it. I don't know that that's always where people go with that, but it tends to tread into that territory. I just thought what he was saying is like food, real food is what's, is really good for you. And so like, I want to defend it. Like we, mm-hmm. we have a society that's sort of putting a lot of other things on the shelves at your grocery store. And he's going like, you know, really you'd be better off with the food. And it's like, I didn't sense a moral, like you're evil if you don't eat food. I think he was like, you may not know this, but like the food is really the, that's what, that's really better. They're lying to you when they tell you that other stuff is good for you because it's not. I think where I struggle with that is that it does often then tread into the territory of and people will be less fat. So that's more where I tend to have an issue with it is that uh, it tends to go in that direction of people will be healthier and that means that they'll be smaller. Um, I don't really, I don't have any issue with people wanting to eat uh, more plant-based. I think that's also better for the environment. Um, I actually was a vegan for a number of years. Uh, it just, I think, needs to include that complexity. Hey, let's just take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. Oh, hi. This is Katie, one of Humanize Me's producers. Fun fact. 
BART releases bonus episodes every month to supporters of the show on Patreon. These episodes are more personal, more relaxed, with insider tidbits, behind-the-scenes convos, and some deeper dives into why this podcast matters to people. Check out our options at patreon.com backslash humanize me. Thanks! So, I mean, that kind of brings me to number two, because one of the things that, like, again, this is the intuitive eating thing that I, like, am a, am a new thinker on. And then number two is honor your hunger. Mm-hmm. And it says long-time dieting teaches us to ignore our hunger cues or to, like, fight them down. But, but, but these folks were like, hunger's a biological response. You don't suppress breathing or blinking or the urge to pee, but we try to ignore our hunger all the time. And so what, what these guys were saying is like intuitive eating is about listening to your hunger and learning to respond to what it needs. I love that analogy of breathing and blinking because that also describes kind of the diet culture cycle or the just diet cycle that people get into where we sort of see a pendulum effect. So when people restrict their eating a lot or follow a diet plan, pretty much inevitably, they tend to swing in the opposite direction and engage in behavior that almost looks like binge eating. And it's a similar thing to if you hold your breath, when you stop holding your breath, you're going to gasp for air and take in as much as you can. If you try to keep your eyes open for too long, you're going to need to blink a lot. And I think people fear with stopping dieting that that blinking is going to continue forever or they're going to keep breathing so deeply and need that much, much oxygen forever. And there's this fear that people have where if they stop dieting and they listen to their hunger cues, that they will just start eating and never stop. And that's really not what we see when folks engage with intuitive eating. There often is a period of wanting to eat foods that maybe you didn't allow yourself permission to have previously or buying things that you wouldn't have considered healthy before. And people find balance. They really do. There's so much that goes into that. But speaking for myself, there was a period when I stopped dieting and specifically when I recovered from my eating disorder, where I think I bought frozen lasagna like three days in a row. And I'm not saying that's bad or whatever, but it's not something that I crave all the time. But I hadn't allowed myself to have that in years. And I was like, I need to eat all the frozen lasagna. And people experience that. And it's kind of scary because you're seeing yourself feel out of control And then diet culture swoops in and says, hey, I can help you feel in control again. Or to the extreme, an eating disorder says, I can really help you feel in control again. You can't be trusted. But when people continue to trust that process, eventually they do find a period of balance and they just think less about food, which frees up so much brain space. Yeah. And and what's interesting is, is you just like, it's funny because you just walked into their third principle and maybe that's why it comes next is their third principle is like, make peace with food. Mm -hmm. And what they were saying is like, listen, maybe you haven't eaten bread for years because they told you like bread will put fat on you. Mm -hmm. And they were like, stop fighting with your food. If you have a hard and fast rule about eating brown rice, even though you like white rice, these guys were like, eat eat white rice once in a while, you know? Um, be gentle with yourself. And, 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 and what they were saying is, is that it's better for you to eat white rice once in a while than to say, I will never eat white rice again. Because like you said, then you're holding your breath mm-hmm. and eventually you're going to be like, fuck all of this. I'm going to eat white rice for the next four weeks. 
Exactly. And we see that happen all the time. People don't like to talk about it. We like to see ourselves. I think a lot of this comes from purity culture too, of just sort of, I am ascending to my moral high ground. I only eat clean, unprocessed X, Y, and Z joyless food. And uh, then they turn around and they have these binge cycles and feel really shameful and awful about it, but don't feel like they can talk about it, partly because diet culture then tells you that it's your fault and you lacked the discipline otherwise. And it's it's very shame-based. It's so shame-based. And I think shame is one of the most harmful uh, hindering emotions that we can deal with. And people suffer in silence because of that shame. I mean, one of the things I know is like, I can't really trust my appetite because my appetite was developed 10,000 million years ago on the savanna when there was no access to fat or sugar. Like when those things were rare. And if you ever found any source of fat or sugar, you should eat all of it right then, right now. Mm. And that, you know, my body's sort of designed to crave those things, but it was designed in another era when there wasn't a Taco Bell around the corner. And and that stuff wasn't cheap or plentiful. And so I know that on some level, it's not, I can't just trust my appetite. I also have to trust a little bit of my brain, but that's where I go. Like, I think it's a, if what I hear these people saying is, is like, your brain knows that you shouldn't eat only white rice, but like your body says, I really want white rice. And so they're like, stop beating the shit out of yourself. Exactly. Because you want white, white rice. Like, go like, yeah, I want white rice and I'm going to eat it sometimes because like, this is my one and only life and I want to make the most of it. And white rice is a part of that. But it also like, I don't think it's, they're saying like, make peace with food. Like, I love you all and I'll eat you all forever, all the time. They're, they're, later, in, later in these 10 intuitive eating principles, there's something else like, yeah, you like, be gentle, but like, be, be gentle about nutrition, but like recognize that like science does have something to tell you about what food does to you. Yeah. And I think not only our biological programming from thousands of years ago, but even our programming in how we learn to approach food as children impacts our ability to be intuitive eaters as adults. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we have to hold a lot of compassion for uh, and find ways to hold space for and to reassure ourselves that just because, you know, say for example, somebody was never allowed to have uh, candy as a kid. And as an adult, they're like, well, now if I buy candy, I'm just going to want it all the time. And we see this effect sometimes with college freshmen when they come to school and they suddenly have access to foods that they haven't been allowed. And they exhibit that sort of binging behavior or hoarding those foods or yeah, the just freshman eating. 15, right? That's, that's what oh, they call yeah. it. That's yeah. a whole other can of worms. But um, yeah, they have this thing that happens where they're like, crap, I have access now to food and I want it. And oftentimes the conversation stops there. But if those people are allowed free access to it, free from judgment, especially, and working on that internalized shame around it, they're not going to be eating Easy Mac every day. Your body does give you cues. And I think sometimes when people are going through recovery, they have these periods of extreme hunger. And I've experienced that a little bit um, when I was going through early recovery. And it was terrifying because you've also told yourself that that's the worst thing that can happen is that you can feel hunger and that you can crave things and want to eat them. But it does, what I like to reassure people is that does end. And it doesn't end in a way that's like, oh, well, now you can go back to 
uh, eating in a restrictive way, but it ends in a way where just it doesn't have as much power over you and it doesn't take up as much of your brain real estate. You just think about food less. And now when I go grocery shopping, I grocery shop in a very intuitive way. The other day, you know, I really enjoy what some people would call whole plant-based foods. Um, But for me, it's not morally loaded. And I also buy Swedish fish because I hadn't had those in a while. And it's uh, sitting in my cabinet. And because I'm not in a diet mentality, I'm not thinking about it all the time. I know I have access to it. I can go buy it again if I need to. And it has less power because of that. I'm not going to sit there and just eat all of them really fast and then panic about it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because that's that's their fourth principle. It's like challenge the food police. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by that is the idea that some foods are good and other foods are bad. I mean, it's interesting. One of the examples that they that, that I read was they said, you're craving chocolate. You know, so go buy a small chocolate bar and enjoy every bite. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to feel happy and satisfied rather than guilty and ashamed. And I think that one of the interesting things that these health people aren't realizing is like, even if it would be more healthy not to eat the chocolate bar, there are health consequences to feeling guilty and ashamed too. Yes. There are serious health consequences like to, to that kind of self-loathing that, you know, that, 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 kind of, that can cause somebody to behave in such a way that they end up not having friends. And that can make them lonely and that can make them depressed and that can have, make them suicidal. Like there can be huge consequences to guilt and shame. And so you go like, maybe the chocolate bar wasn't the worst thing I could have done. Right. And your body is also dynamic and we need to look at things in the long term. I think people have this fear that if they eat something once, it means that their body is just going to implode and, uh, you know, just suddenly their cholesterol is going to shoot through the roof. But it's really about your long term habits and behaviors. And it's so much more complicated than just eating something one time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so like, and, and, and again, like you're, you're helping me to, to sort of you're making these things come alive for me because the, the fifth one is the one you just, it's like discover the satisfaction, which I thought was a great principle. They were like, I love that one because for me, uh, diet culture, but moreover, my eating disorder took the joy out of food. I saw yes. it as numbers. I saw it as uh, just a source of tension and anxiety. I felt like I was in an abusive relationship with my diet. Um, and to be honest, there were also points where I was so anxious when I would sit down to eat something that I couldn't even really taste the food. It almost had this like metallic-y taste um, because my cortisol was just so high. My my adrenaline, my anxiety was through the roof and your body doesn't know the difference between running from a bear and that sort of threat and the threat of your eating disorder freaking out about uh, food in front of you. So my body was like, we don't even want to enjoy this right now because we're so stressed out. Um, And it just took the joy out of it. Even recovery took some of the joy out of food for me too, because you have to eat. uh, And this is where eating disorders and intuitive eating collide a little bit. Um, You can't exactly engage in intuitive eating and all of the principles while you're recovering from an eating disorder because you don't have accurate hunger and fullness cues yet. Um, And that can be a challenging place to be because you're following a meal plan often and 
eating at least minimums of things. And eventually the goal can be intuitive eating, but for a while you have to work with a dietitian um, or a nutritionist. Right, it's a transition. Yes, you have to be able to heal before you can really trust your own body cues because they're so messed up. Because that's the thing, like, it, it, it sounds really crazy, like, that we have to even say this out loud, but life, you know, the, the enjoyment of life, like, what makes life worth living, among the things that make life worth living is eating. It's such a social behavior. It's it, it, and, and, and evolutionarily, evolution sort of hardwires us to enjoy things that we need to do to, to push life forward. Like sex needs to be fun so that we'll do it or otherwise there wouldn't be more life. And eating is supposed to be enjoyable. And I don't mean like God ordained it. I mean like we are wired to enjoy this thing. And so if somebody's not enjoying eating, if they're not tasting the food and, and, and the textures and enjoying, like there's something wrong, yeah. like something scientifically wrong there. Yeah, it just becomes boring and a task instead of a necessary part of existing and something that can be joyful. And, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking because in my own life, you know, uh, it feels like diet culture has done to food what, you know, fundamentalist Christianity did to sex. Yes. And that is take something, you know, fundamentally beautiful <laughs> and enjoyable. And, That's such and, a good analogy. <laughs> and make it. And, and make you feel so guilty about doing it that you can't enjoy it while you're doing it. And, and, and the satisfaction, literally satisfaction, is the key to knowing that you're full, right? Fullness and satisfaction are related. And so if you're not really paying attention to the experience of eating, you probably won't be able to hear your body say, okay, I've had enough. That's good. We're, like we're if here. you're not paying attention to the experience of eating, but also if you're being told that you have to eat in a certain way, that takes away any sort of intuitive eating, listening to fullness cues that you might have had. Uh, you know, if you're eating based on a caloric amount or based on macronutrients or based on, uh, you know, needing to look or be a certain way, you're not actually paying attention to what your body needs. And your oh, body's it's, it's smart. almost like that muscle that that muscle would atrophy in a sense, like not a muscle, but like that sensitivity to fullness would atrophy because you're like, oh, we never even pay attention to that. It does. It does. People have to relearn how to listen to their body's cues and how to notice those cues. Often people don't realize that they're hungry until they're lightheaded, or they don't realize that they're full until they feel nauseous. And we've been trained out of listening to those body cues. Uh, either by an eating disorder or diet culture or both. I, you know, I'm, I'm as, what do you call it? What do you guys call me? Straight? Straight sized. <laughs> I'm straight sized. I'm a straight sized guy. And I'm, I have a metabolism that basically means I can eat whatever I want to and stay straight sized. Um, as long as I keep moving. And, and what's interesting is though, I had about a couple of years where I became really aware that I was constantly eating to the point that I felt a little bit gross, a little mm -hmm. sick. And it, it took some conversation and some thinking about it to start, you know, basically it was my wife who was sort of like, hey, about halfway through the meal, you should pause and just give yourself a minute, 
for your stomach to catch up with, you know, what the activity. And then just sort of go like, how hungry am I? And then like, you know, follow your hunger. Like if you're still hungry, keep eating. But she's like, I'm convinced that the last half of a meal, you're, you started the meal because you were hungry, but you do not continue the meal because you are still hungry. You continue the meal because there's food in front of you. Yeah, I think that's probably a common experience for people. Um, and I think it goes the other way too. People stop eating because they've been told that they need to eat that certain amount and you lose that connection with yourself yeah. and then you finish the meal and you're like, wow, I'm really grouchy. Um, I don't feel great. And you're realizing that you're hungry an hour later. Well, if you had just learned to listen to your body's own cues and the world had told you that that was okay, you would have eaten in a more sustainable way and sustainable meaning you would have had energy longer and you would have felt better. Yeah. And you would have just been able to move on with your day. And you might not have gotten in a fight with your your partner because you were hangry. Oh, yeah. Listen, I was a jerk sometimes when I was on certain diets or um, when I was really deep in my eating disorder. I was, I mean, not only was I, I was a jerk, but I just was less of a person, if that makes sense. Especially deep in my eating disorder, I felt like I was always in survival mode. And I just was getting through moment by moment. And I did not have time for other people's uh, little irritations. I My tolerance was so low. And uh, even if I didn't snap externally, I became really resentful of people really quickly because I was just yeah. irritated all the time. Now, now I'm in a conundrum right now mm -hmm. because we, we've, done, we've done seven of these suckers. And the ninth one is really pretty simple. It's movement, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think what intuitive eating does is it contrasts movement with exercise, right? Like exercise is this diet culture thing where you have to sweat and you have to move in certain ways. And, you know, but, but movement, you know, what, what, what this thing sort of says is like, if you could discover like movements that bring you joy and like, instead of trying to do movements that will cause you to lose weight, that would help you in terms of, again, like getting in touch with your body, reading the cues, eating when you should eat or when you, when you want to eat and stop eating when you're full. Like, like that movement would be a good, is a good part of being an intuitive eater in a way that hardcore exercise probably isn't. One of the most helpful things that I had a dietitian reframe exercise for me as was as joyful movement. I think at this point, exercise is kind of a neutral term to me. I tend to say movement because I think we have associations with words and connotations. And I think there's a connotation with exercise of like that 80s uh, neon pink exercise instructor. Um, but I definitely like the word movement because it also seems more fully encompassing of what movement can look like. I found a lot of joy in yoga. I became a yoga instructor during the pandemic um, and uh, worked at a treatment center as a yoga instructor. I uh, just moved to Florida, so there's a pool here. And I'm seeing if I like swimming as a form of movement because I know that movement also helps me feel good. And I'm trying to garner those positive benefits that I pretty much ignored for years because I only thought about it as a way to compensate for eating or for a mechanism towards weight loss. And that made me avoid exercise for a while because it just felt so uh, loaded 
and it just felt boring because I was trying to do a specific regimen that I thought was the right way to do it. So I like movement because I think it's more in line maybe with what I do now. Um, and it, I think just because of the connotations feels better to me. You know, and I always just think like if you put in front of everybody a form of movement that's really only pleasurable to people of a certain body size or a certain body kind, you know, then I think everybody else goes like, well, that looks like freaking swimming the English channel. Yes. And I know I can't swim the English channel, so I'm not even going to get in the water. And people are more likely to move if you take away, like, it's got to be this awesome thing where you burn all these calories or you get super strong or it shapes your body in a certain way. Yeah. And what a disservice to exercise because there are so many other benefits that we've lost sight of and that I definitely lost sight of in the way that I was looking at it. I love being a fat yoga instructor and teaching other fat people because people think that they can't do yoga because they've only had street sized yoga instructors or they've only seen you know, really skinny bendy people on the cover of yoga magazines or on Instagram. And that really gets away from what yoga is in the first place. That could be a whole other podcast episode. But um, I love uh, kind of upending people's expectations of what a supposed fitness instructor or movement instructor can look like, especially teaching in a treatment center. I would walk in, um, you know, and they thought I was another therapist that was just starting that day or another patient. Um, and I would say, hey, everybody come into you know, the room. We're about to do yoga. And uh, people were not always good at controlling their facial expressions, but it was entertaining for me. That's so interesting. Even the word fitness, like it's, it's kind of like, you yeah. know, you've, you've, got, you've got to be, you know, like. What does fit even mean? I think we. Or what are we being say, fit for? Yeah, right, like, it's not an aesthetic. Um, right. But we've made it out to be that. Yeah, are you fit to live? Are you, are you, it's, it's fitness really is an, is a, uh, a synonym for worthiness. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, are you worthy? Um, yeah. So, so, so the, here's the conundrum I'm in. I go like, yeah, the movement thing, like you, I'm sure we could have a whole conversation about it, but like, again, that one's not hard. Uh, the, the, the last one we've already touched on. The 10th one is honor your health with ne- gentle nutrition. And that's when we were talking about like, look, let's not kid ourselves. Science will tell you that certain foods are going to have certain effects on you. And like, you're crazy. We we would be crazy as a society if we turned away from the understanding of like, your body needs, your brain needs this many carbohydrates and don't let any dietitian tell you, don't let any diet or exercise guru tell you that you should stop carbs or else your brain won't function as well. And the one I skipped over was number eight. And that's respect your body. And that's the one that's all about body positivity. And I just feel like there's a whole conversation there. There um, is. About beauty. We may want to change what our idea of aesthetically pleasing is. We may want to broaden that out. But like the idea that we're attracted to certain forms and certain kinds of people. And like that's kind of hardwired into us by evolution too. Like the idea of looking for mate that's going to help us get our DNA down the road. Well, I think, you know, again, I don't really care if people find me sexually attractive. You know, if they do, cool, hit me up, I'm single. But at the end of the day, for me, it's not about that. Whether or not people want to procreate with me, I want access to healthcare. 
and I want to be treated <laughs> like a fucking human being. I want to be able to go grocery shopping and not get weird looks when I put something in my cart. I want strangers to stop giving me unsolicited information or opinions about my body. I want, if I'm sexually assaulted, to be believed when I come forward. Fat people are less likely to be believed. I want, um, you know, to just be treated like a human being uh, in all areas of life, including when I'm on the internet and not be told, um, you know, that I'm disgusting and going to die in 10 years and X, Y, and Z insert fat phobia here. I think that there's also that assumption there that we are drawn to straight-sized people because they're healthier and they're more likely to procreate. And I don't think that that argument is inherently correct. Thin people have health issues. Fat people have the same health issues. Um, and fat people can be healthy just like thin people. And I think that overgeneralization is not necessarily biologically hardwired. I think that is where that intersection of socialization and biology maybe come together. As I'm listening to you, I find myself going like, okay, Molly, break me down then. Because <laughs> here's what I want to know is like, what do I do to support fat people better? Like all those things you talked about, they'll sound horrible to me. I mean, I've always known it's horrible to get made fun of on the playground for a kid or to not be in, or, or, or to be excluded from some social group when you're in high school. Like, like there's things that, you know, they make movies about that we, that we recognize our problems, but like the, the stuff you're discussing, healthcare and access and things like that, they, they take it to a different level, um, portrayals in the media and stuff like that. So like when you, when you look around, if somebody says like, you know, I want to be, I want to be a good person and I want to be in, and there's a, an area of life that I haven't really thought of. And that is like, what does it mean to be a good ally? Or what does it mean to be a good friend or a good, a good parent? What do you want from other people? What, what would be helpful from other people? Oh boy. Um, you know, I think one of my biggest asks of people is to just have these conversations and become educated. But I think it starts with the individual. I think challenging your own beliefs about how you were socialized to believe certain things about other bodies is a really good place to start. Well, you know, I'm, I, I, I hope that you feel like listen to today. I do. I really do. I, I, I'm like, I, I'm genuinely going like, did I listen well enough? I really appreciate meeting you, Molly. I um, appreciate it too. You know, I think, um, Sometimes this can become sort of an echo chamber. And I really enjoy talking to people who are on this journey who don't necessarily agree with me on everything um, because I think that's where the growth is going to happen. And, um, you know, I feel heard and listened to. And I appreciate you taking the time and inviting me to come on your podcast and chat about this stuff because I know it's not easy to confront. Yeah, you've made it much easier than you might think. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was it. That was me and Molly. And I would be really curious to hear what you think about it. And I know I'm going to get some I know I'm going to get some negativity. There's no way to talk about this without getting negativity. 
The thing that's most important to me, the thing that's most humanizing to me is not that we always get it right, but that we're really trying to think about things that impact how well we love each other and how well we take care of each other and how, how much we come to understand ourselves. Like I, I really do want to become a more humane and a more human being. And so that's going to be messy, right? There's no way that's not going to be messy. And so I hope you like the conversation, but whether or not you liked it, I want to hear from you what your deal is on this, on this subject. So yeah, I, I, I guess I, I often say, Hey, I'd love to hear what you think. But this time I'm like, I covet your input there. There's a good biblical word, right? Covet. I covet your input. And uh, whether you send it or not, I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. To hear an exclusive extra episode every month, please go to patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get Bart's monthly newsletter over there and get access to some great Humanize Me merch. Our supporters on Patreon are the ones making this show happen. For more information on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. Also, if you choose to listen to the podcast on Spotify, we have a listener poll that you can take part in every episode, including this one. So join us on Spotify. Humanize Me is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life. All right, so those were the credits, as always, and this is the thank yous, as not always, because we thank different people every time, and who are we going to thank this time? All right, Bart, this time we want to thank Mark Lazzaroni, yes. Phil Casper, Anne Schizel, Leslie Napier, Roman Campolo. That's my boy! You know him, don't you? Yes! You know, it's funny. People might go like, oh, you know, of course his son's going to like, actually, your son is the last person that you would expect to support your <laughs> podcast. That's and funny. so it's actually, you know, like Roman, if, if you're listening and you go like, yeah, does, it, does he really even notice? He's like, yes, yes, I do. John does. It means a lot. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, uh, two more names before we're done for today. Nick Acochella and Curtis Cannon. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you, everybody. Um, what a big deal. What a big deal. I mean, Huge. It is, it's it, like, I know it sounds funny, but like, it is inspiring every time we look at the list and realize we've got people behind us. We have a, we have a team. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll try to do, we'll try to do more and better. <laughs>